A FedEx MD-11 cargo flight is landing at Narita in Japan when something goes wrong. What caused this flight to flip and catch fire? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. We have... Manu. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Manu is actually here in the States from Germany, is one of our patrons that we have visited in Germany, as well as Belgium, a couple of times. And uh, we planned long ago that Manu would come to visit and is participating in this episode this time, which is really exciting. So thanks for having me. Yeah. I look forward to this episode. Been looking forward to this episode. Granted, we are going to be doing the second part of a series. She so. has been briefed. Yes. Okay, good. Mm-hmm. So you've been caught up on what happened last week since it hasn't come out yet. MD-11 yes. has problems. We solved the problems, right? Well, we thought we did. <laughs> mm-hmm. We're going to do a longer episode about why we didn't. <laughs> all right. So do all the normal stuff. Chickity check out everything. <laughs> everything. Merch page, newsletter. Oh, question came up today. Do we have socks? No. Ah. But we can have socks. The problem is, is I don't like how... I have to design them. Yeah. Because I'd like to put like the hard landings on the feet part, mm-hmm. but it won't let me do that. Uh, so we don't have socks. I can make socks. I would like to formally request socks. I also would like to formally request socks since I have to wear socks every day. If they come in black, that would be ideal. I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out. Since people wear funny socks, like all my managers wear funny socks everywhere, I wouldn't mind having my own brand on my feet. <laughs> just discreetly walking around with my own branding around my legs <laughs> i will look into the socks okay and i will let you know okay that being said if you have a request just let me know that's right apparently there's... pajamas are not an option no there's no pajamas and that happened though. like just about the time we were like let's get, get pajamas pajama. for the whole five of us on the team i was wondering i checked recently yeah i didn't see i any. took them people off. talking about it yeah we, we talked about it a few times because we were like, we really want matching. pajamas, matching Done. pajamas yeah. for the full team because we like just hanging out in PJs and watching YouTube stuff. and stuff. And now we can't. Nope. Sorry. 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 Maybe someday. But yeah, they do not exist. So. Yeah. Yeah. If they become available, because we use a third party publisher company. Yes. That does it for us. If they become available, we can make them available again. But mm-hmm. I had to take them off so no one tried to buy them because for whatever reason, they still showed as available on our store. Which is dumb. If they don't have them, they shouldn't be available. Yeah. Like it would let you purchase it and then it would say out of stock. Yeah. And then it's just permanently out of stock because they don't make them anymore. So dumb, but. Yep. That's anyway. all right. Anyway. And then make sure you check out the Patreon page too. Did we miss doing trivia answers or do we need to do that this time? When does this come out? (laughs) (laughs) We are right on time. All right. So So we'll do them at the end of this episode. We will do the trivia answers at the end of this episode for this month. Yeah. And that. Nice catch, Nick. Yes. So that means this is also your cue if you want the newsletter for next month to sign up right now. Right now. You can also view the newsletter on the website. (laughs) Yes, you can also view it on the website. But sign up right now and you will then have it as soon as it comes out. And then you can answer the trivia questions right away. Right. For brownie points yes. or whatever that's worth. Worth. They're, <laughs> they're totally made up and have no meaning, purpose, or value. They have meaning to me, Nick. They have value sure. to me. God. Wonderful. All right. What are we covering today, Nick? Today, 
we are covering FedEx Flight 80. Thank you to JJ and Gary for recommending this episode. Yes, thanks. I'm actually kind of surprised that it took us so long to get around to this one because this was on my original list of to-dos back when we started the podcast. But we started getting recommendations and thus I let go of that list quickly and waited for it to come back around as a recommendation. And it's back. It's here. This accident occurred on March 23rd of 2009. That is more than 10 years since the last episode. Yes, it is. Just like we said. <laughs> you said it was more than 10 years ago, which yes. it is. <laughs> what? It also... hasn't, hasn't moved in the meantime. No, it has not. It turns out. <laughs> if you've listened to the last episode, you might know a lot of the foreshadowing and also the fact that this may or may not also be an MD-11, of which case May or is. may not. It is. With the tail number November 526 Foxtrot Echo. The MD-11 is still in FedEx's fleet today. They still use them a lot. They're going to be retired soon, but... Eventually. They still use them a lot. Lufthansa had them until recently. Yeah, I know. Lufthansa Cargo used them for forever, too. And Lufthansa had them in their fleet for a while, passenger jets, too, which was cool. This was a flight from Guangzhou in China to Narita in Tokyo. This has some unfortunate relations to the recent incident in Tokyo, but this is at the other airport. I will say that now. Obviously, it's not the same kind of accident, but there's a lot of similarities. So bear in mind if you have any kind of trauma related to that recent accident, in which case, I'm sorry, though it was pretty miraculous, but this is a trigger warning that this is a lot of similarities. The captain for this flight was Kevin Kyle Mosley. He was 54 years old. At the time, he had 8,132 hours total, of which 3,648 were on the type on the MD-11. The first officer was Anthony Stephen Pino, who was 49 years old at the time, had 5,248 hours, of which 879 were on the MD-11. Relatively experienced crew overall, neither one of them breaking the, what is that, five digits, but still, decent amount of experience in the cockpit. However, the first officer was still newer, not new, but newer on the MD-11. The flight departed Guangzhou on an instrument flight rules flight plan, which had the flight cruising at flight level 290 or 29,000 feet for a flight time of three hours and 26 minutes. I thought it was interesting that they were cruising at 29,000 feet for almost three and a half hours. Yeah, it seems really low. Yeah, it's really low. But I mean, cargo airplanes and also like the MD-11's efficiency just, they tended to fly lower than a lot of other airliners, which was weird. They still do. They can fly pretty high. Don't get me wrong. They can get up there, but usually when they're flying cargo. Yeah, they're, they're based on an old design. The MD-11 itself isn't super old in terms of jets. But it's based on an old design, the DC-10 being, I would call it old at this point, uh, for sure. Yes, <laughs> it is the old. Yes. The MD-11 is aging, don't get me wrong, but there are still some that are well under 30 years old. So, like, they're in their early 20s. We're not in our early 20s anymore. No. I'm definitely not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I keep forgetting <sighs> that detail. <laughs> Thank you. For this flight, the captain was to be the pilot monitoring while the first officer was to be the pilot flying. The takeoff, climb, cruise, and initial descent were all normal. As the flight neared Narita, they were transferred to the tower controller for the final approach and landing as they were descending toward 1,000 feet. 6.41 a.m. and 35 seconds local time. The flight made initial contact with the tower and reported being 13 nautical miles from runway 34 left, their intended landing runway. The autopilot and autothrottle were engaged at this time. Four seconds later, the air traffic controller instructed the flight to continue its approach to 34 left. They were second in line to land and that the winds were at 320 degrees at 28 knots, 28 knots. So they've got some wind. 
There's some wind happening. However, it's mostly pretty down the runway. Ever so slight crosswind, but it's mostly pretty down the runway. Simultaneously to this, the first officer instructed the captain to perform the before landing checklist, be it that the first officer was the pilot flying. Right. The flight then acknowledged the air traffic control instructions. 6.42 a.m. and 14 seconds, the crew discussed the approach speed and agreed on V-ref plus 10 knots, V-ref being their reference landing speed based on everything related to runway length, weight, everything. Adding the 10 knots gives them their approach speed, their right. final approach speed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Their speed was to be 164 knots. Spoilers that were then armed for landing. This is typical in most aircraft. I know we don't really talk about this, but they are automated on almost every aircraft during the landing sequence. So you put them in the armed position so that when you touch down, they, they deploy. Pop. 6.42 a.m. and 40 seconds, the crew discussed and confirmed setting the auto brake at medium and then putting the landing gear down. The auto brake we talked about in the last episode, but it is what automatically applies the wheel brakes at a certain rate during the landing sequence as well. They set the rate that they think will give them the best performance based on the length of the runway, where they want to exit, etc., etc. 6.43 a.m. and 57 seconds, a PIREP, or a pilot report, was provided by the air traffic controller to the approaching flights, be it the two flights basically on approach to 3-4 left, that there was possible wind shear of plus or minus 15 knots below 2,000 feet, which is relatively significant when you're trying to hold a set speed yeah. for final approach, that that speed fluctuation of plus or minus 15 knots, that means the aircraft can will be gaining altitude and losing altitude very rapidly in a very critical point of flight as well. Winds were reported by air traffic control at that point in time as being 320 degrees at 23 knots, gusting to 34 knots. So we've still got some windy wind. Some windy wind. Some but windy wind. We got that gusty wind. Got that gusty windy wind. Oh, wait, what, what was it? What? The spicy. Spicy oh, wind. The spicy wind. Spicy wind? You missed this. Okay. I don't know if it's out yet, but if you haven't listened to it. The bonus episode. The bonus episode. Yes. Um, I think it was, was it the post episode or in the bonus episode? It was in the bonus episode. Okay. We discussed that turbulence is just spicy air. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like that. Yes. <laughs> yes. I encountered so, some like, spicy air you, today. You like that? Some extra spicy air. <laughs> yes. This a, one's not like extra spicy. It's like maybe a little jalapeno. Media, yeah. It's like a jalapeno spice. spicy. Yes, yes. This one is a medium jalapeno spicy. Germans still can't handle it, I tell you. Really? They just don't like it? No, we can't handle spice. That's fair. I can, but... Italians are kind of the same. Like pepper is super spicy to them. <laughs> yeah, Something like that. Yeah. And yet they also love to put like crushed red pepper in oil. So, you know... <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh they put they barely any on the food. Yeah, oh. and they think that that is like complete fire, like ruin your mouth, tongue destroying fire. The the one spicy sauce they have, they call arrabbiata. Yes, which means angry. Yes, it's just angry pasta. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all need to have some authentic Mexican food. <laughs> <laughs> spicy air. Yes, spicy air. Spice is that some caliente air. Yes. Six forty four a.m. and eleven seconds. The crew discussed the wind and agreed that it wasn't too bad since it was. At the nose of the airplane, basically, down yeah. the runway. 6.44 a.m. and 50 seconds. The captain advised the first officer to check the wind shear guidance, and the first officer did so. 6.44 a.m. and 16 seconds. The air traffic controller reported that winds were now 320 degrees at 26 knots, gusting to 38 knots. So they have increased a little bit. More spicy. A little, a little spicier. 6.45 a.m. and 32 seconds. The first officer requested flaps 35 degrees, and the captain acknowledged and set the flaps. 6.45 a.m. and 45 seconds, the captain completed the before landing checklist. 
6.46 a.m. and 16 seconds, the air traffic controller discussed the approach conditions with the preceding flight. So the, the flight ahead of FedEx 80 landed, and the air traffic controller asked them about conditions on the approach, and they reported that there was strong turbulence below 1,000 feet with plus or minus 15 knots of wind shear still. So pretty spicy air. Pretty spicy. Quite, quite, quite spicy. Quite like a habanero lot of, spicy? Uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty spice at this point, yes. Okay. Let's go with Serrano. Serrano? Sure. It's, okay. it's getting there. It's definitely getting there. 6.46 a.m. and 29 seconds, the air traffic controller cleared FedEx Flight 80 to land on runway 34 left. The flight acknowledged the clearance. At 1,000 feet, the autopilot was partially disengaged, but the autothrottle was left engaged. The flight crew used some heavy control inputs to counter the turbulence and maintain a stabilized approach. 6.46 a.m. and 53 seconds, the cause we talked about in the last episode... Yeah. This is the... Central Oral Warning System. That's the one. The Central Oral Warning System. This does the call-outs on the approach. We talked about it in the last episode. Nothing changed. It's an MD-11. Yeah, it does the 100. Yeah. 100. 50. 50, 40. 40, 30. 30, 30, 30, 20. 10. And if you're in an A320, 5. (laughs) (laughs) 6.46 a.m. and 53 seconds, the cause called out 1,000 feet. So they were 1,000 feet above on the final approach. You can't make this stuff up. I had to leave this one in here because of the statement. (laughs) I know what you're going to say. 6.47 a.m. in 10 seconds, the captain stated, Yeehaw, ride him, cowboy. Okay. I would like the record to show that the Air Disasters episode did not depict this correctly. They depicted the first officer saying it. Yeah. It was indeed the captain. It was indeed the captain. That doesn't make it better. No, because they were riding the turbulence nice and heavy. That way to make a situation awkward. I would feel like really awkward after someone said that. I mean, oh, they were both laughing and joking and teasing about it. Yeah, they were. We'll talk about it. this. Isn't the last time they're that way. Ew. <laughs> that. Ew. Six forty-seven a.m. and seventeen seconds. The runway awareness advisory system called out the approach to runway three-four left normally. So we've never talked about one of these before, and it's nope. the only reason that I left it in here. Mm-hmm. But these are most common with the newer systems we have on aircraft, like ForeFlight we can use in GA aircraft, and most newer aircraft with modern avionics, like the A350, the Maxes, the 787s, and the likes, they have these systems, and obviously some of these older aircraft had them modified to have it as well. But this system was intended to prevent crews from entering the wrong runway or approaching the wrong runway. It can tell based on the trajectory of the aircraft, its speed, its location on a taxiway, its location on an approach, what the runway is that it's approaching, and it calls it out. It says approaching runway 3-4 left. Well, that's fancy. It's something we've never really talked about before, but this this is the thing. Like, especially in general aviation now with four flight, everybody uses four flight, and the, you, if you leave it on, it will tell you when you are entering a certain runway. Or approaching a certain runway. It's actually a very useful tool, and it is a nice thing to have. If you say so. 6.47 a.m. and 40 seconds, the cause called out 500 feet. So 500. At the time, the aircraft was at 179 knots and was almost perfectly on the glide slope and the ILS. Eutimus. Yes. 6.47 a.m. and 42 seconds, the captain reconfirmed runway 34 left as their runway, just basically stating, like, That's where we're landing, yeah? This is 34 left. I, I, it's I, not even. It wasn't even a question. He was stating... Three, four left, saying that is what they could see. He could basically, at this point, he could see the numbers on the runway. And then he called out stabilized. This is a new call out. Yes. At the time. Yes. And both crew laughed at that because, of course, they were enduring some nasty turbulence. So stabilized felt um, 
poignant. They were technically stabilized in the approach. They were on the glide slope, the ILS. They were within a speed bracket, we'll say, and approaching the runway properly. But how goofy they're being is making me very uncomfortable. Yes. Same. I'm all about having a good time, but can we not do it on like takeoff or landing? That would be great. (laughs) Yes. By this time, the flight was at 166 knots and still on the glide slope and ILS normal. 6.48 a.m. and three seconds, the cause called out autopilot off, indicating that all autopilot functions were disengaged. So they had disengaged the autopilot completely. However, the auto throttle was left engaged. This call was made at 198 feet above the ground, while the flight was at 178 knots and on the glide slope and ILS. What is the face? Didn't that happen on the last one? Yes. They kept the auto throttle engaged. There's a lot of parallels already so far. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Remember when we said that things weren't entirely fixed? Yeah, I remember. <laughs> I'll there, there are some. There are definitely some differences but that the- we've already noted. You you noted you noted the auto throttle. Stick a needle in that, and uh, we'll circle back to it. Yes, I have a feeling. <laughs> I had a feeling. Yes. <laughs> okay. Six forty eight a.m. in five seconds, the pitch was increased, which helped the airspeed decrease to one hundred and sixty five knots. Six forty eight a.m. in nine seconds, so just a whole four seconds later, the flight was at one hundred and fifty seven knots with engines at idle while flying one hundred and thirty feet above ground level. On short final. Simultaneously, the air traffic controller informed the flight that the winds were 320 degrees at 27 knots, gusting to 34 knots. So, still some spicy winds. But not as gusty. Like, the winds yes. themselves are faster, but the, yes. the, the gusts are not as The bad. magnitude yes. of the gust yes, is not, it's not as quite bad. as much. Two seconds later, the cause called out 100 for 100 feet above. The flight was at 154 knots and only slightly deviated from the ILS as it crossed the threshold. The cause then called out 50. The aircraft speed had increased to 161 knots. The cause then called out 40, 30, 20, 10, normally. The flight flared late. The aircraft then touched down with the right main first in the touchdown zone. That is not the football touchdown zone. (laughs) (laughs) The touchdown zone on a runway is quite literally where you put the airplane on the runway. It's also much larger than a... End zone. Um, yes, it is about the size of three football fields. Yeah. <laughs> One might say it's not exactly the same. The automatic ground spoilers deployed automatically. Hey, that's different. Hey, yeah. that's yeah. what they're meant to do. Yeah. What? That's crazy. So the ground spoilers had deployed automatically. However. I love that word. Drawing that this is a parallel to the other MD-11 we talked about last week. I bet you can guess what happened next. Uh-oh. Did the gear collapse? Not We're yet. Not, not yet. Oh, they, they bounced. bounced. They bounced. I was like, wait, what happened before the gear collapsed? And it, became airborne again. They bounced. Boing. The airplane pitched forward and made a second touchdown with the nose landing gear first, at which point a loud pop was heard. And then that would... Not yet. Oh, pop? Did the tire pop? No. What pop? But there was a loud bang. We'll talk about it. Okay. There are parts of the nose wheel on the runway. Yes. I didn't go into it, so no, I'm not going to talk about it later. I talk about it later. Okay. So they touched down nose landing gear first, at which point they heard a loud bang, and then the main landing gear touched down. This touchdown was associated with 2.21 Gs of force, <laughs> which is quite a bit for an airliner. After this forceful touchdown, the aircraft pitched back up, bouncing again, so they became airborne. Bruh, do a go around. A second time. Yeah, yeah. Bruh. So 
Go around. The force with which they hit the nose gear forced the airplane back up. We'll talk all about that. Honestly, I could have spent an eternity going on about the specifics of this. There's a video. I skipped that analysis. Yeah, I skipped most of it in the story because it's nitpicking all of, I mean, super fine details. Go around. Yeah. Go, go around. Well, after the aircraft bounced and was airborne again, this time the spoilers retracted automatically. This time the aircraft peaked at 16 feet before once again pitching nose down. Dude, bruh. We'll talk about it later on because agreed, however. Put a pin in it. Put a pin in it. Needle, you know. Needle, whatever. The airplane touched down for a third time, again hitting the nose landing gear, doing a lot of damage. First, followed by the left main, which hit with the most force. Then the center and right main gear which, yes, this is an MD-11, it has a center gear. With this touchdown was also a loud bang, a louder bang, as the force reached 3.06 Gs, probably actually more than that, but that is what was registered. Simultaneous to the touchdown, the left main landing gear didn't quite collapse. It's kind of more complicated than that this time, but kind of collapsed. More than anything, the aircraft sank to the left, the left engine struck the runway, the left wing then bent upward and tore from the fuselage. Sound familiar? Just the other wing this time. As a large ball of fire erupted from the left wing and engine area engulfing the aircraft. The fuselage continued rotating to the left until it became fully inverted in flames. The fuselage swerved and ran off of the left side of the runway, coming to a stop in a grassy area. Also a big parallel. The fire spread quickly, engulfing all but the cockpit. However, the impact was heavy and a safe escape by the crew was not possible. Oh, so they passed? Uh, okay, Unfortunately, so. this time, both crew perished. Mm-hmm. There was only two, not five on board this time, but both of them. They were taken to a hospital, but they didn't make it. They very quickly to their injuries. Yes. Um, the aircraft I, was completely destroyed by the fire. Much I, more so than the last time. I had to read this, so you have to learn it. Yeah. Trigger warning, this is graphic. The captain died of thoracic organ damage. Ew. Mm-hmm. Which means he hit the control column. Yeah. Or the control column hit him. There was combination of his organs and the control column. Mm-hmm. And the first officer died of systemic burns with burns of the respiratory tract, primary shock due to the exposure to high temperature and acute respiratory failure due to burns of the respiratory tract. Ow. So his lungs burned yep. while he was alive. Eh, this one is ugly. Ooh. And not going to sugarcoat <laughs> it. This was... It, it brought some attention to a, an actually critical problem with the MD-11 that fortunately on FedEx-14, they managed to get out, but actually they found that there was a design flaw with freighter version of the MD-11. We will talk about that in my part later, the second half. Got anything else? That is it. Okay. This investigation was performed by the Japan Transport Safety Board with the assistance of the NTSB. This is really how they are. I know. Yeah. <laughs> both black boxes were recovered, albeit exposed to very high heat. Yes, very. They were both sent to the NTSB. Washington, D.C.? Yeah, I was going for the, the never mind. <laughs> they were both sent to the NTSB lab in Washington, D.C., where the data from each was able to be retrieved despite the damage. Before those were able to be read, investigators worked to figure out exactly what happened. Marks on the runway revealed a total of three touchdown marks, and this was confirmed by security footage that was eventually delivered to the team. The footage showed that the aircraft bounced twice before its final impact, where the wing sheared off and the aircraft rolled and ended inverted in flames. Sound familiar? Very. There's a link on our website to the video. 
This video is very famous because this was so dramatic when it happened. This was very ugly when this happened. But it was immediately apparent from the video. Why? Investigators then proceeded to interview air traffic control who stated that they had received pie reps of wind shear, which was confirmed by wind data in the area that showed gusts of plus or minus 15 knots. Therefore, it was highly probable that it was turbulent on landing, but this was well within the authorized range of the manual. The wind at 1,000 feet was 60 knots, which is high. Around 500 feet, it was more like 50 knots, but near the ground, it was closer to 25 knots. That's called wind shear. Yep. The turbulence in the 1,000 to 500 foot range was confirmed by the CVR, which showed the crew riding the turbulence like a bull at a rodeo, saying things such as, yeehaw, ride em, cowboy. Yep. That being said, they did call out stable while on approach, but they had a light joking air about them one minute before touchdown. The following analysis was based on the combined CVR, FDR, and security camera footage. At 100 feet above ground, the autopilot was already disconnected, but the auto throttle was engaged. The pitch was at 1.4 degrees, decreased to as low as 0.4 degrees, but increased to 3.5 degrees at 92 feet AGL, likely the first officer trying to correct that they were slightly below the glide path at that mm -hmm. point. The pitch decreased to 1.1 degrees at 48 feet above ground, and the calculated airspeed increased to 161 knots from 154 knots, but that value is still below their approach speed that they had mentioned during the briefs as 164 knots. Does that pitch seem a little low? Yes. Yeah. Their sink rate was 13 feet per second. Then investigators heard something key, which is hard to depict on the report, but it was depicted in the air disasters episode. 50, 40, 30, 20, 10. I said that a very particular way. What's wrong with it? And very specifically, it was... Fast? Very specifically, it was about 50, 40, 30, 20, 10. And that's about how fast it happened. To put it in musical terms, there's not much of a retardando there, is there? No. Which that means you should be flaring, slowing down, yeah? And they weren't doing that. Okay, so that was a very quick sync rate. Why? Well, there are a couple of answers. One, the flight data recorder... Recorded the auto throttle, pulling the thrust levers back to retard mode, which they are programmed to do once reaching 50 feet and ending at idle at 20 feet above ground. This is great for calm wind days. Not so much for spicy wind days? Correct. Proper technique would have involved overriding the auto throttle and increasing engine thrust to counter the winds. Because they just lost thrust 50 feet above ground during gusty winds. High sink rate. High sink rate. Number two, the company's flight manual describes this as a normal landing. Quote, maintain a stabilized flight path through the 50 and 40 foot cause callouts unless sink rate is high. At 30 feet, a smooth 2.5 degree flare should be initiated so as to arrive below 10 feet in the landing attitude. Elevator back pressure should be relaxed and a constant pitch attitude should be maintained from 10 foot radio altitude to touchdown, end quote. What actually happened? The pitch angle remained low at 1.1 degrees and decreasing to as little as 0.7 degrees when they were less than 20 feet above ground before mm -hmm. quickly increasing to 4.6 degrees just two seconds before touchdown. The flare was late by about 0.7 seconds. Aw, bruh. Tough break. In so doing, they had a high sink rate, which led to the hard landing. I know where the button is now. We had to do that so many times last time. So the flare was clearly botched. Very. Just as it had been for Flight 14. But why? This answer comes from one of our favorite topics. The first clue came from the cockpit voice recorder where investigators heard the crew discuss being tired. Which makes sense given that in the past 10 days they had flown 38 and a half hours, traveled 11,000 miles, and crossed eight time zones. Oof. Yikes. But 
Were they technically fatigued? Like, per regulations, were they fatigued? Investigators analyzed their history from the past few days using everything from credit card receipts, hotel key card records, family and friend interviews, you name it, they had it. From this data, it was surmised that though both crew had the correct allotted rest time provided in their schedule, each had four hours of sleep or less. Oh, that's not great. Not good. To exacerbate matters, the crash occurred at 6.49 a.m. local time which is roughly in the window of circadian low for the general Asian region. I don't know exactly where they spent the night, but this would have been in the window of circadian low for wherever they spent the night. It was somewhere in Asia. This deduced fatigue was the attributed cause to the 0.7 second delay in flaring. Yes, that is a very short amount of time to delay, but it resulted in disaster and is one of the most trained parts of flying that you learn very early on. It's drilled into your head. Okay, sure. Bounce landings at the time happened all the time. Yes. A bounce landing should not cause a fiery disaster. So what went wrong? Well, this has layers. Like an ogre, if you will. Which is like an onion, if you will. (laughs) Both of the accident flight crew had received the bounce recovering training after the accident in Newark, as it became required. Yep. So how had they biffed the bounce landing? Let's dig into their professional records. The captain was very experienced having flown F-4s for the Marines, and he had 8,000 civilian flight hours. However, he had only recently returned to flying from sick leave for pain in his sacrum, but he had received a requalification training and passed his proficiency check. There was a mild concern that was not mentioned in the Air Disasters episode, but it was in his section in the report. His autopsy revealed temazepam, which is a metabolite of myelin-345, which was found in his bag. This is a benzodiazepine that he was likely taking in the short term for pain relief in his back. Wait, why was he allowed to take a benzodiazepine? He's not supposed to take a benzodiazepine. According to the FAA at the time, it was allowed on an occasional basis, which was defined as less than twice per month. And the pilot would have to wait at least five dosing intervals of the medication before operating an aircraft. So he shouldn't have it in his bag, is what you're saying. No, he shouldn't have taken it within five cycles of taking it. But I don't know how long that period is. Right. So, because we're not pharmacists. Hey, pharmacist people. Because <laughs> I know there's some of you out there. There's at least one of y'all out there. And I we know who I, you I'm are. I'm pretty sure there's two. Yeah. Myelin 345. Yeah. Anyway, since the medication metabolite was only found in his urine and not in his blood, investigators determined that he had taken the medicine in accordance with the FAA guidance and was not under the influence of the drowsiness caused by the drug. Well, that's good. So he did. He did a good. Well, other than the fact that he was flying on four hours of sleep. Yeah. That in terms was a company no problem. Bueno. Yeah. In terms of medication consumption, he was okay. The first officer was a veteran of the first Gulf War in the Air Force flying C-5s. Wow. Yeah, right. Both were well-trained and had no failed checks as opposed to the last accident crew we spoke of. Yeah, not great. However. Big however. Of course. Uh-oh. The first officer had to be recertified on MD-11s in a simulator just six weeks prior to the accident. Why? Turns out, he usually flew as relief crew on long-haul flights, taking over the middle of flights, which means he didn't perform takeoffs or landing. Right. Right. Yikes. In fact, he had only landed 73 times in the last two and a half years. Oh, that's not no bueno. That's an average of less than three landings per month. So he had to do a recertification. He passed. Which is good that they were like, yeah, you got to recertify. And it's valid. I mean, it's a worthwhile thing to do because 
then theoretically it should be fresh in your mind and you're mm-hmm. well-trained, right? But could this lack of oh. landings be why he biffed the bounce? The bounce recovery training demonstrates that all you need to do in an MD-11 is increase thrust to counteract the aircraft's tendency to pitch up excessively and to maintain a 7.5 degree pitch until the main landing gear are planted, at which time the nose can be pushed down. So why didn't he just do that? According to the FDR, he pushed the nose down after the bounce, which is the exact opposite of what you're supposed to of the training. That's almost exactly what happened the last time we covered this. Here's the second yeah. layer. One of the investigators had a thought, a good thought, a smart thought. They use that big wrinkle brain. Yep. The MD-11 is a pretty long aircraft with the cockpit jutting forward past the nose wheel. It is considered a long body. The cockpit juts forward past the nose wheel by a fair amount. What exactly does a bounce look like from that cockpit? They enlisted Boeing. Boeing. That is a really unfortunate oh. name. <laughs> Sorry. They enlisted Boeing to create a simulation that would show the view out of the cockpit, and it proved exactly what the investigator suspected. Due to the protrusion of the cockpit past the nose wheel by such a far length, the cockpit doesn't go up much, if at all, during a bounce. So the crew probably didn't even know they had bounced. The first bounce wasn't even noticeable to them. Oh, that's not great. The first officer was just putting the nose down as he would for any landing. Because he thought that they had touched down and were planted. That's what I've got. Oh, that's it? There were, there was a lot of layers there. Oh, so... Bad flare due to fatigue. And then... Bad decision making in the moment. Didn't realize they bounced. So they didn't follow bounce recovery training. So, but, I mean... I've got a lot so, of things to talk about in the second half that will probably answer a lot of your questions and a lot of the issues that you probably still see. Yeah, because, okay... That makes sense as to why it was very similar to the mm-hmm. previous one, because mm-hmm. if they can't tell that they bounce, they obviously just think that they're on the ground, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. But if that were the case, why didn't the pilot we covered in the last episode, because he survived, mm-hmm. say anything about the fact that they wouldn't have realized that they had bounced? Trauma. That in that instance, the bounce was pretty heavy and they were nose high. So they right. could tell that they bounced. In this one, oh. they were nose low. They were almost level when they landed. So it was a lot harder for them to tell that they had bounced. Okay. So it's a little bit different. There are, like I said, there are actually some differences here that make the accident. Because if they had been exactly the same circumstances as the the one we talked about last week, it wouldn't have happened. Okay. By training. Because there were variances away from the training that they had received and from typical procedures of the MD-11, this was still a whole new scenario that allowed them to basically do the same thing, end up with the same outcome. Now, of course, we'll talk about in the second half, too, the really critical thing, be it that this one was not survivable, was of note about how the MD-11 still had a major structural failure that just does not seem normal for most aircraft. Right. And it was the exact same one in both accidents. Yeah. Could not have been more identical. So we'll we'll talk about that in the second half. They had a lot to say about that. Okay, because I limited myself. I know. I now see that what you're talking about is part of the problem cause, and that's my B. Okay. Okay, we're back. Welcome back. Welcome back. Let's do the regular things. They are... Regular. Regular. Plenty. However, be it that this is a Japanese report. First of all, a couple of things to be aware of. First of all, English... Not, not the first, first language. language. So sometimes reading this will be fun. 
Second of all, oh my God, are they long-winded. There are not very many findings as a whole. They are not as bad as the Taiwanese. No, not at all. However, what they do is a little different. Rather than creating very, very, very lengthy reports with way too much information, they get the important information. However, they like to be very... Verbose. About it. Loquacious. Yes. However, they probably don't use those words. (laughs) You mean they don't like them SAT words? Yeah. They don't number their findings, which is a little strange. It's also section four, which is a little different. However, they do have all the same things. It's usually section four. No, section four is recommendations. It's usually section three. Section four is recommendations. Yeah. Yeah. They have section four, five, and six. Okie dokie. So they don't number the findings. They letter them. And it goes up to M, in case you're wondering. However, the not very many of them take up three whole pages because they are lengthy. Long. Yeah. So I am going to read some of this, but bear with me because they are a bit to read. They found that the airplane was flying almost on the glide slope during its approach until 200 feet radio altimeter altitude with autopilot and autothrottle engaged. In view of the large fluctuations of the airspeed and the three control surface inputs, it is highly probable that it was gusty wind conditions, but it was not accompanied with severe wind shear, which is hazardous to flight operations. Both the pilot in command and the first officer had physical awareness of this gusty wind condition in addition to the information obtained from the air traffic controllers. Very long-winded way to say. It was pretty obvious that the winds were high and they were dealing with some turbulence based on the inputs that they had done on the flight controls in those last 200 feet. Hashtag that spicy air. Spicy air. That was one finding. (laughs) (laughs) And they only get longer. I'm also reading these slowly because they they use the right words, but they don't pluralize things correctly. Because yeah, they don't have to do that in Japanese. Sounds right. Right. Japanese, yeah. So it said like three control surfaces input rather than control surface inputs. Yeah. And then gusty wind condition instead of conditions. Yeah. Anyways. They're trying. Okay? They are trying. They're trying. They're doing a good job, but all right. They found that at about 200 feet radio altimeter altitude, only the autopilot was disconnected. After that, it is highly probable that the first officer, as the pilot flying, manually controlled the airplane. The autothrottle remained engaged. It is highly probable that he had difficulty in maintaining the proper airspeed amid gusty wind conditions because he depended on the autothrottle and did not properly and actively override the autothrottle to control airspeed. The pitch angle also varied between 0.4 degrees and 3.5 degrees. It is highly probable that these airspeed pitch attitude fluctuations, the large descent rate, and the D-crab maneuver, so when an airplane isn't a crab, it's flying essentially slightly sideways or at an angle, and you D-crab usually by using the rudder to bring it back to straight, as well as the ailerons. And the D-crab maneuver to correct for the crosswind component from the left to align the longitudinal access with the runway center line made it difficult to flare. They're trying to give him some benefit of the doubt in that one and say there's so many factors there that maybe the flare didn't happen properly because they were counteracting so much of the turbulence. The wind wasn't monitoring speed and pitch properly. So it was kind of like an overload of things happening that prevented the first officer from doing a proper flare at the right time. They found that the company flight manual recommends starting the flare at 30 feet radial altimeter altitude. But it is highly probable that the flare was delayed until the airplane descended down to 20 feet, which is way too late. The flare was rapid with a large elevator input. The maximum vertical acceleration on the first touchdown was about 1.63 Gs, smaller than 2.15 Gs, the threshold value for hard landing inspection. 
specified in the aircraft maintenance manual. It is highly probable that no damage was caused to the airplane structure at this point on the first touchdown, because they did touchdown main landing gear first on that one. The airplane bounced upon touchdown because the delayed flare did not arrest the sink rate, and the airplane touched down with a high sink rate, about 7 feet per second, receiving a large ground reaction force. Rapid flare with large elevator input generated the lift large enough, the vertical acceleration just before touchdown was about 1.24 Gs, at the touchdown to bounce. Very long-winded. <laughs> that was yet again another one finding. So they were stating all this to say that the forces weren't enough on the first touchdown to be considered a hard landing per the maintenance manual. However, it was enough, based on the lack of flare and the Gs experienced, to bounce. They found that the forward control column input was started at just after the callout of 10 feet. This input is therefore not considered as derotation. So it happened before they were already on the ground, which is typically made after touchdown. It is somewhat likely that the forward control column input continued after touchdown was the reflection of the pilot flying his intent to have all landing gear touch down and have the airplane stable on the ground, which didn't happen. They, they awarded this one kind of poorly, and there's more to it. We're not done. There's two more paragraphs to this finding. <laughs> it is important to note that what they're trying to say there is the pilot flying seemingly thought they had touched down normally and was trying to derotate the airplane. However, this is more intending to force the landing at this point, and the pilot flying, being the first officer, didn't recognize that the aircraft wasn't actually on the ground properly. So pushing the nose forward by pushing the control column forward was not the right thing to do, and thus contributed to the bounce. Because of the large nose-down elevator input just before and during the first touchdown, the airplane nose dropped rapidly. The pitch angle decreased at 3.6 degrees per second during the bounce, and the pitch angle was negative 1.8 degrees when the second touchdown was made. It is highly probable that the second touchdown was made on the nose landing gear immediately followed by the main landing gear touchdown. It is highly probable at this time that the nose landing gear was exposed to a large load and its components detached. They know that because they found them <laughs> on the runway. They also heard it on the CVR. Executing bounce recovery or go around was the appropriate option at this time. However, decreasing pitch angle during the bounce caused the pilot's eye point or their point of view to lower toward the ground and the pilot flying probably didn't realize that the airplane had bounced. Accordingly, it is highly probable that any operation to cope with the bounce was performed. I think they were trying to say was not. I'm going to read part of this finding because the rest of it wasn't worth anything. They found that the airplane fell into so-called porpoising. We've talked about porpoising before, but this is where the aircraft, it starts to bounce to a point where it's actually unrecoverable. Right, it's oscillating. Yeah, yeah, it's oscillating. A phenomenon in which the airplane repeats bounces with increasing oscillatory pitch motions after the first touchdown. The large elevator input intended to control the airplane and large nose-up attitude after the second touchdown was a major contributing factor to the porpoising. The last means of accident prevention was to execute a bounce recovery or go-around during the second bounce. However, large pitch attitude change possibly made it difficult for the pilot flying to have a correct picture of the pitch attitude in altitude during the bounce. So after the second one, they think that it just was happening so quickly, plus all the forces made it almost impossible to do a bounce recovery at that point, is what they're saying. They don't guarantee that, but that's their thought. They found that the pitch angle was negative 4.9 degrees and the sink rate was 21.5 feet per second at the time of the third touchdown, while the vertical kinetic energy of the airplane reached about 6.8 times greater than the requirement for certification, the ultimate load, against the structures. 
This energy damaged the nose landing gear wheels and the inner parts of the strut upon the touchdown of the nose landing gear. Just after the nose landing gear touchdown, the left main landing gear touched down ahead of the center and right main landing gears. The overwhelming vertical load was transferred from the left main landing gear to the left wing structure, surpassing the ultimate load. This fractured the left wing near the left main landing gear attachment point, followed by the left roll due to the lift generated by the remaining right wing, which is why they rolled over in both accidents. They have one wing that's still technically generating lift, plus forces. It all works together. It failed the same way that FedEx Flight 14 did. However, there is a pretty key difference that they mention here, and we'll dive a little bit deeper into it with some of these following findings. However, Something that was brought up during FedEx 14 was the idea of simplifying the landing gear and using a fuse point, basically, or in this case, a fuse pin is what they went with, to simplify how the load is distributed amongst the landing gear structure so that it transfers to the aircraft more directly and could theoretically hold more load. That makes sense. However... It actually worked against them in this case, and we'll talk about that in just a second, because the airframe didn't hold up. The wing still fell apart. That said, did you catch the big number in there? Last time we talked about, in FedEx Flight 14, that they went about three and a half times, I think it was like 3.3 something, over the designed load. This was 6.8 times the designed load, the certificated load. That is a lot. This one was heavy. They found that it is somewhat likely that if the fuse pin in the main landing gear support structure had failed and the main landing gear had been separated in the overload condition in which the vertical load is the primary component, the damage to the fuel tanks would have been reduced to prevent the fire from developing rapidly. It is probable that the fuse pin did not safely fail because the failure mode was not considered under an overload condition in which the vertical load is the primary component due to the interpretation of the requirement at the time of type certification of the MD-11 series airplanes. So what they're talking about there, I have to dive a little bit deeper, but specifically they're talking about the landing gear because it was a vertical force that was applied. It didn't shear this pin the way it was designed to be sheared, but that's because that pin was designed to be sheared by a horizontal force. If there was too much horizontal force, it would shear the landing gear because they're supposed to do that. In certain accidents, this one being a vertical force meant the pin didn't shear, so the landing gear didn't detach from the airplane. So instead, it forced its way up through the fuel tank. Oh. That's what they're talking about here, and that's why they're saying had the landing gear sheared, the likelihood of such a large fire... Would have been less because it wouldn't have punctured the fuel tank. Right. It would have been a lot less. It's not that maybe there wouldn't have been some damage causing a fire still. This is why you don't need things to be strong in all directions. No! It turns out... So this was something they recommended later on, not hinting at anything about redesigning the way the landing gear structure holds load. They found that it is highly probable that the pilot in command, as the pilot monitoring, did not advise about the deviations from the glide slope and proper flight status, nor did he provide effective assistance or take over the controls. I didn't talk about this at any point in time because I wanted to save this, but we know CRM was broken down. Right here, they place a little bit of the the accident's Result on the captain saying your CRM was poor in that, you know, you didn't, you didn't take, do anything. You didn't take, well, didn't take over the aircraft when a bounce occurred. Did the captain recognize the bounce? We don't know. However, the captain didn't take over controls when the bounce occurred, nor did the captain 
Note that the airplane was below the glide slope once they drifted below, and they were only 200 feet above the ground, which was a sign that they were sinking quickly. That should have been the time to say, go around. Now for this other topic, the survivability. They found that although the fire engine started discharging water two minutes after the accident, the fire had most probably spread to the front part of the fuselage, and this made it difficult to immediately enter the cockpit to rescue the two crew members. So rescue services couldn't get in because the fire had already spread forward a lot. And if you watch some of the video, that is quite apparent that the fire engulfed everything. So not a surprise per se. However, that does hinder their ability to go in and rescue the crew. However, there's a major design flaw with the crew getting themselves out when a fire occurs as well. Well, they need to not have a control column in their chest. Well, yes, (laughs) but... It turns out because this was a freighter, there were some protective devices in place behind the cockpit Oh, that were intended to keep them safe from the cargo. However, it also prevented their exit in a fire. Whether or not they actually tried to get out with that, I don't know, but we'll talk about that in a minute. They found that it is desirable to improve the camera installations at airports to enhance the use of camera images for investigations into accidents and incidents for the safety of aviation. This was not because of a lack thereof. No. This was because it existed in the first place and they realized how helpful this tool would be. Yes, and it would be nice if it was a little bit higher quality. I left this one in here because this could not be more relevant right now with what happened in Tokyo just a couple of weeks ago. Having the camera footage, everybody saw it very quickly, what happened with the A350 in Tokyo. That's because the airports have really decent cameras installed now for this exact reason. When accidents happen, it's really helpful to have this kind of data on landing and takeoffs and anything that happens at the airport. So that was it for the findings. We've got a lot to go over in the safety actions and recommendations, but it's time for a lengthy or verbose probable cause. Yeah, get buckle up. Buckle up, buttercup. This is a page, basically. In this accident, when the airplane landed on runway 34 left at Narita International Airport, it fell into porpoising. It is highly probable that the left wing fractured as the load transferred from the left main landing gear to the left wing structure on the third touchdown surpassed the design limit. Yeah, again, English. the English. I Ulti- corrected a lot of things. Ultimate load. It is highly probable that a fire broke out as the fuel spillage from the left wing caught fire, and the airplane swerved left off the runway, rolling to the left, and came to rest inverted on the grass area. The direct causes by which the airplane fell into the porpoise phenomenon are as follows. A. Large nose-down elevator input at the first touchdown, resulting in a rapid nose-down motion during the first bounce, followed by a second touchdown on the nose-landing gear with negative pitch attitude. Then the pitch angle rapidly increased by the ground reaction force, causing the larger second bounce. B. The pilot flying's large elevator input in an attempt to control the airplane without thrust during the second bounce. In addition, the indirect causes are as follows. Fluctuating airspeed pitch attitude due to gusty wind resulting in an approach with a large sink rate. Late flare with a large nose up elevator input resulting in the first bounce. Large pitch attitude change during the bounce possibly making it difficult for the crew members to judge airplane pitch attitude and airplane height relative to the ground. And the pilot monitoring's advice, override, and takeover were not conducted adequately. It is somewhat likely if the fuse pin in the main landing gear support structure had failed and the main landing gear had been separated in the overload condition in which the vertical load is the primary component, the damage to the fuel tanks would have been reduced to prevent the fire from developing rapidly. It is probable that the fuse pin did not fail because the failure mode was not assumed under an overload condition in which the vertical load is the primary component due to the interpretation of the requirement at the time of type certification for the MD-11 series of airplanes. Very long-winded 
way. Basically, the whole main landing gear thing yeah. is contributing to the devastation of it the is. crash. Not it was not the accident itself. Correct. Contributory factor. Yes, it was a contributory factor to the severity of the accident. Correct. And it's valid. A lot of newer aircraft were designed with a certification where they have a horizontal shear and a vertical collapse that are supposed to happen under certain conditions to prevent worse situations from happening. All right, we have some safety actions, things that actually changed after the accident before the report came out, because a lot needed to change. I mean, the fact that they had an almost identical accident to FedEx 14, don't get me wrong, under slightly different circumstances and with a, ultimately a different root cause, but the fact that this failure still happened proved that the MD-11 wasn't impervious after FedEx 14 from a hard landing. So, the airplane manufacturer being McDonnell Douglas slash Boeing, of the airplane, convened the MD-11 Operators Conference in October of 2010. Participants at the conference exchanged their views about problems related to training and flight operations of the MD-11 following a series of hard landing accidents accompanied by structural destruction. In February 2011, the airplane manufacturer revised the MD-11 manual. The revised manual stresses matters to be kept in mind when flying the MD-11, and in particular called for caution against an excessive descent rate during an approach, which was what was so different about this accident versus FedEx 14. The sink rate happened way too fast, which ultimately caused a bounce, but more than anything, wasn't recognized in time and wasn't corrected properly. So they're calling out the need for MD-11 pilots to be aware of excessive descent rates, especially on landing. Things that were changed by FedEx. They removed references which allow the nose-down elevator input during landing from the manual. So in other words, don't put the nose down during landing. They revised the manual to initiate flare between 40 and 30 feet, so even higher than initially recommended before. They revised the manual to execute a go-around in the event of a bounced landing. I, I know we talked about the fact they probably didn't recognize the initial bounce. After the second bounce, it was determined it was probably unrecoverable. However, they did have something in mind for that, and we'll talk about that later on. That doesn't have to do with FedEx. That has to do with the manufacturer. But in the event of a bounced landing, the recommendation was to always go around immediately. Yeah, which, we talked about that. Yes, should be the right thing. There's, you know you bounced. Get yes. the heck out. Yes, there's literal guidance on exactly how to do this, and we'll talk about that in a minute, too. FedEx also improved academic training, which was designed and implemented to make crews more aware of how to land a long-body airplane, with specific focus, of course, on the MD-11. They also designed and implemented improved landing training in all simulator training sessions and line operations to reinforce the relationship between power, pitch, and rate of descent, so the critical three when you're landing. They retrained this as a whole and made it a bigger part of the simulator training. They also aggressively, I love that they used this word, they aggressively reinforced go-arounds as the safety solution in all pilot communications, training, and checking events. They were, one, rotate the pitch and hold seven and a half degrees nose up. Two, move throttles to maximum power. So in the event of a go-around, no matter what the go-around reason, not just bounces, exactly how to execute it on the MD-11. As soon as a go-around is called, as soon as it's initiated, this is how you do it. FedEx also trained and has been checking pilots' hand-flying skills during all of their simulator line checks and line check events. They also installed HUDs to their airplanes. Heads-up displays. Heads-up displays. 
which was to improve landing safety. Rather than looking down at the instruments, you're looking forward, you're aware of the attitude of the airplane out of the window, but you also have all of your instruments in front of you, all the critical information in front of you, because you're looking through the HUD out of the window. This does improve a lot of safety, and a lot of airlines are using this, and now there's a new version that's been making the rounds that is nearing certification, but it's a wearable HUD. What? Yeah. Like a fighter pilot? Basically, but it's kind of like, it, it looks like glasses, but it's got a kind of a big black box across the top of it, but it's the first one to near FAA certification. So be interesting to see. It is a cheaper option than the installed HUDs on aircraft. So I think that's why the airlines are very interested in this being in, in existence. However, I still think there might be some caveats to the way it could be used. FedEx also improved CRM and human factor skills. Hey, hey, hey. In their training. Because, of course, CRM was actually very broken down, more so than they even mentioned in the probable cause, which did bother me a little bit, because CRM was a really big factor in why this accident happened, if you ask me. They were a little lackadaisical with the nasty winds, which then left them in a less than precise situation while actually doing the flare and landing. They also implemented fatigue risk management to ensure that all pilots are properly rested before flying. Because, you know, that's kind of important. Yes. Just to say the the four hours of sleep was not enough no. for operating that's heavy not, machinery. That's not enough for anybody, much nope. less people who are operating machinery. Heavy, heavy machinery. That's all I'm doing in the safety actions. There were others. However, I didn't feel that they were necessarily... Needed. Well, it's necessary. not that they weren't. It's wasn't, it wasn't that they weren't necessary or needed, but they weren't as pertinent to preventing this kind this of big accident. Accident. Yeah. There are safety recommendations, and I'm only doing a couple of these because I didn't think that actually most of these were adding anything massive, other than the fact that they wanted to have a correction to some of the MD-11's systems and structure. They recommended in order to reduce the occurrence of MD-11 series airplanes, severe hard landing and bounce in which an overload is transferred to the main landing gear and their supporting structure, the Boeing company should improve the controllability and maneuver characteristics by improving the LSAS functions, which we talked about the LSAS last time, reducing the automatic ground spoiler deployment delay time and other possible means. Anything to basically kind of allow the airplane to settle in properly, even if the attitude is not correct. Possible improvements to the LSAS function may include a function to limit large nose-down elevator input during touchdown phase, which is a common phenomenon in severe hard landing cases accompanied by structural destruction of the MD-11. And a function... Structural destruction? I know, that's what they used. And a function to assist bounce recovery and go-arounds in case of the bounce. Well, that part gets interesting because what they recommended for that, the LSAS specifically, talking about the computer that prevents the aircraft from being put in an overload situation or a dangerous situation by the pilot's inputs. They wanted to, and what they're suggesting here is when the aircraft detects a bounce, it automatically assists the crew in doing a go-around. It also prevents the aircraft from pitching forward at the wrong time, working in tandem with the altitude alerts, basically, knowing how high it is above the ground, because the aircraft knows, it shouldn't allow a pitch nose down, even if the pilots put that control input within the last 20, 30 feet. It shouldn't allow it. That would have probably saved this accident. 
They also recommended in order to help pilots to conduct recovery operations from large bounces and judge the necessity for a go-around, studies should be made to install a visual display and an oral warning system which shows gear touchdown status on the MD-11 series airplanes. Most... I think this happened, yeah? Yeah, I think so. Most aircraft already have this anyways, most modern airliners, where it tells them when the aircraft is on the ground, when there is weight on the wheels. There is usually a visual indication of that, not an oral one, but there is a visual indication of that, which would be helpful in the event of a bounce. Yes. When you lift back up, two things, they should have an indication that the spoilers retracted and that the aircraft is no longer on the ground, at which point, go around. These were the things that I thought were really important. Obviously, CRM was huge here. It just wasn't mentioned as much, I think, as it should have been, but FedEx kind of took the lead on that and improved it anyways. And they haven't had a major, major, major MD-11 accident since. However, they have had some incidents with the MD-11s. They are notoriously just difficult aircraft. We brought up these two in tandem because the MD-11 is mm, flawed. In <laughs> its design. The Very DC much so, yeah. The DC-10 was flawed in its design, and the MD-11 didn't do much to better that. As a matter of fact, making the tailplane smaller, they were like, ah, it'll be a little more efficient in the skies. It won't be quite as easy to control, maybe, because now you have to have a lot of force versus large control surfaces, and also the wind affects it a little differently, like the air over the, the tailplane, and... It's a little harder to control during landing, turns out. That's a big deal. But eh, we'll design it that way anyways. And they did. There's a Lufthansa cargo flight that's a pretty similar to these also. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it looks like in 1999, a China Airlines flight exceeded crosswind specs and also flipped onto its back and Oof. burned. Yeah. Yikes. I think I remember that one. Um, In 1999, FedEx Express Flight 87. Mm-hmm. Rolled down the length of the runway before plunging into the bay where it was completely submerged. An excessive approach and landing speed were pointed out as probable cause. Because this airplane has to have a high speed. But yes. maybe not that high. Yeah. So, yeah, the MD-11 was flawed, too. And don't get me wrong, it still kind of is. But there aren't a whole lot of them left flying. The ones that are still out there flying, they're the pilots are well-trained. They know the systems. The systems are a little better to prevent situations like this. We shouldn't. See another accident like this. Yeah. If that happens in two weeks, don't. Don't come, don't for, come us. for us. <laughs> we have bad luck with that. Guy. Apparently, all that to say, the MD-11s have been flying for a whole nother over decade since this accident. And they've been very reliable, actually. So they're still very reliable aircraft for cargo ops. They were still decent airplanes overall. They are very capable when it comes to carrying weight, which is why they were so popular with freight companies, FedEx, UPS, and the likes, all using them for freight. Lufthansa, of course, all using them for freight. So that covers the, the series of the two. Ta-da! 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 It was some major changes to the MD-11 and to the industry, the freight, the cargo hauling industry, FedEx. I remember when this one happened, that the Flight 80, and I just remember it being absolutely insane. I mean, I think I think I felt about the same way when I saw the video of this one that I did when I woke up and saw the 350 accident in Tokyo, mm-hmm. yeah. where it just, it almost doesn't feel real. It's just baffling to the mind to be watching this when it happened. I was watching it live from the moment it happened, yeah. basically. Yeah, it's crazy. I just, yeah. I don't know. It just, uh, it it baffles the mind. It's, it's sad. It's dangerous. It was unfortunate, 
Thankfully, we learned things from these. Yep. Thankfully, the 350 wasn't more tragic. Indeed. The Dash 8, very unfortunate. Yeah. But anyways, that's it for that one. That was FedEx Flight 80. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you for joining us, Manu. Yes. Thanks. It's a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. I had fun with you guys, and I'll still have some fun days with you. Yes. yes. Up. <laughs> and then we're going to go post-episode and talk about probably not this. Yeah. <laughs> so, trivia questions. Let's oh, do trivia sh- questions. All yep. right. And then we Which will ones are they? Episode. Oh, you should be able to all answer this one after listening to this episode. <laughs> after touchdown on landing, panels are raised on top of the wings. What are these called? Manu? <laughs> Spoilers? Yeah. Good job. Woo. Uh, Kevin answered all of the trivia questions. Okay. Fun fact, the first one was spoilers. Yep, yes. You were correct. What? Uh, we, co- we had a few other people answer too. I'm just opened Kevin's email. so. Yes. What caused the de Havilland comet to be grounded? Kevin says it, it blowed up, sir. <laughs> <laughs> You're not that wrong, a, sir. That's a shortened way of saying yes. They just went. Boom. Yeah. Fatigue cracks. And the passenger's lungs unfortunately did too. Rap- yes. <laughs> and a rapid, no. a rapid unscheduled disassembly during flight. Yeah. 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 Yep. That also had to do with the fact that there were uh, square windows. With stress concentration points. Yes. Which rapid is why construction. you don't have square windows. Yeah. Or when square you hardly have, anything. When you have fatigue stuff and then there's a pointy thing and yes. then it goes, oh, look at that. <laughs> Yeah, this still, it still blows my mind that with the comment. Blows? Yeah. yeah. Dang. I was about to say. It still, blows, <laughs> it still blows my mind that with the comment, like the very first jet, like one of them just went pop somewhere. There was horrifying. And, and everybody was kind of like, that was weird. Oh. Carry uh, <laughs> <Leo>, on. <laughs> Leo gave us a small dissertation. He says the comet was grounded because of the fatal design flaw where it would have an explosive decompression far earlier than ever expected. However, it was not because of the square windows. It was only involved the windows indirectly. The square windows thing is actually a myth that has been debunked by many people and create content based on air accidents like Admiral Coldenberg disaster breakdown and mentor pilot btw by the way yes um, you should check them out if you haven't already the real issue with the comet is that it had no fail safes any cracks mm-hmm. would appear would never appear before an airframe was retired at ten thousand hours to the engineer's mind the designers did not take into account a few things the very thin fuselage skin mm-hmm. and a change of plans of how the windows were installed instead of being glued on which i think they we actually rivets. we covered pretty well that that was really more the issue. It wasn't necessarily even like the square windows as a whole. The rivets, right? It was the way it that was the installation the, was of done. the windows, yeah. yeah. Which is still stress concentration points. Yeah. Yes. yes. And it's still important to note that we still do rounded windows to prevent this from stress being an issue. Stress concentration points. No matter what. Like, even if it doesn't have anything to do with, like, actual pointed corners on the windows, this just prevents that from being an issue point blank. All over to get, yeah. Point even so, when they used rivets, they used punched-in rivets, which would we leave, did discuss that. Yeah, microscopic cracks in the skin instead of drilling the rivet holes. These cracks are where the fatigue cracks would start to form. The thin skin only made things worse. The squareness of the windows had nothing to do with the fatigue cracks. Actually, stress concentration points make it easier for the cracks to propagate, which yep. is covered. Yes. So yes, they do. Were they the cause? No. no. But they it was the way that it was installed. <laughs> yes. With the cracks propagating and then eventually big boom. 
I'm so yes. proud of you. Can you lecture for some mechanical engineers <laughs> one day? <laughs> but yes, you're onto you're onto all the right things, and I think we tried to cover that well in the accident. I know we still kind of point out that it's the pointed windows, the corner windows, but it actually really we we did cover that in the episodes yes, that we, we talked did. about. It was the rivets, the thin skin. There was a various set of that's circumstances why, that's that why made we had this the happen. Yak Man on. Yes. Any of you Floridians happen to be uh, spotting the Yak Man? Let us know because he ain't in Colorado no more. Nope. Yeah, but it's still weird to me that like. Airplane went pop. We thought mm, that was weird and then just continued. Anyway. And then a, and then a second one went pop and we anyway. were like, that was also kind of strange. Anyway. Maybe we're onto something, but let's continue anyways. And then a third one went pop and we went, we should do something about that. Yeah. <laughs> now it only takes two. Apparently, uh, which is still horrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One airplane pitches over and goes into the ground and we thought, hmm, that was weird. And then anyway. let them fly. Well, and, then and then it happened and, again. And Boeing blamed the airline, which, right. d- based on the airline, was like, yeah, fair. And then another, more reliable airline, it happened to. We were like, hmm. hmm. Maybe that wasn't like so Boeing. weird. Boeing. <laughs> Wait a minute. Mm-hmm. Maybe that was weirder than we thought. I'm almost done with his dissertation. Yes, okay. okay. The only reason why the Comet 4 had rounder windows was because it was easier to replace the windows with less rivets to undo. Mm-hmm. I, again, I Rude. would disagree with you. They did the rounder windows because then there wouldn't be a stress concentration point to help cracks propagate. It was still a learned thing. Yes. It has slight, very, very slightly to do with the square windows. Yes. But it, was that the leading cause? No, it no. was not. You are correct. That's not the leading cause. But yes. it doesn't help. Anyways, yes. They went pop because stress concentration. Yeah. And, and cracks. Yes. T cracks. All right. What does EPR stand for in regards to turbine engines? Engine pressure ratio. Yep. Engine pressure ratio. An engine pressure ratio of one is idle. Yes. It is. Number four should be what's our second most listened to episode. Yep. Leo said the day the music died. Not even close, by the way. That's not even close. No. Weirdly, no. I mean, I know why that one would be really popular, but no. It's actually not. It's really not. Kevin did get it right. There was a few other people that got it right, too. I just want to say. These are the two that I literally... That are at the top of the inbox. Yes. Or down where I they answered immediately. Yeah, so yeah. they're down where the, the actual newsletter got sent up. Kevin said my guess would be Air France 447. That would be correct. correct. You yeah. are correct. He, and he figured Tenerife would be number one. It's actually our first episode. UH-32 yeah. is uh, Our first one. episode still sits at the top. Yep. It still has... Let's see. Currently, it has... 3,265 listens as we're recording this. Air France 447 has 3,073. And then the third most listened to is China Airlines Flight 611, which has 2,310. That's the other one we had the Yak Man on. And then Lot 16, which is 2,224. Those are our top four. Yes. So, yeah. So, yeah. Thanks for answering the trivia questions, people. Yeah. I think... Bob answered them somewhere. He did. I don't know if they were on Patreon or if they were in an email. They might be in an email. Can I find said email? That's a great question. Because Bob always has funny answers. Hold on. Let me see if I can find it. Gotta love Bob. We love you, Mm -hmm, Bob. mm -hmm. Bob's the best. He said, number one, after touchdown on landing, panels are raised off the wings. What are they called? Spoilers. Yep. (laughs) There's should definitely be a flashing light in the cockpit that says spoiler alert. (laughs) Spoiler alert. (laughs) Or sometimes they're called speed brakes. There is, but that kind of ruins the gag. Yeah, there there is an indication in the cockpit that shows speed brakes up, and they are in almost every airliner, and they are supposed to make a call out speed brakes up yeah. or speed brakes deployed. And then the comet, why it was grounded? He said, "Not square windows." 
mm-hmm. though they certainly didn't help. Yes. Ultimately, it was grounded due to cracks and metal fatigue, primarily caused by punching holes for rivets instead of drilling them. Yep. Correct. Punching Which is still stress concentration. Yes, it is. Left teensy weensy. <laughs> he said technical term. Yes. Cracks, very technical. Which grew and spread and then suddenly kablamo. Kablamo. Also very technical. <laughs> yep. Engine pressure ratio, EPR. And he said, yes. <laughs> 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 and then the second most listened to episode, he said, Air France 447. Although, although I never realized that Miranda was drunk during that one, so I'll have to go re-listen to it. <laughs> yeah, me too, actually. <laughs> if you did not realize that, you need to go back. Because you can definitely tell after we say that. And you're like, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. The rambles. If you... Listen to that before we edited it. Oh boy, no one can make it through that. Oh, how did man. we make it through that? I don't know. That was we recorded that one on a rough night. It was recorded in, in two batches. So the first batch I was smashed, and yeah. the second batch, <laughs> the second batch I wasn't smashed. So right. it the second half was easier. But oh yes. man, I I remember even editing the first part of it, and I was like, Wow, shut the. F- Shut up. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. We do appreciate it. Thank you again, Manu, for being here. Check out all the stuff. Give us all your money. Rude. Yeah. Or not. It's (laughs) it's your choice. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks for listening in general, right? It always helps us. Share us with your friends and family. Coworkers, assistants, cousins. Strangers. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) On the street. Just go, hey, you should listen to this podcast. Yes get some merch do all the cool stuff we do appreciate it thank you so much we're rounding the corner to two years on recommendations so chill out on the recommendations yeah. right? <laughs> I uh, mean it would be kind of cool to cross two years but it's don't hard don't say that Nick because then I'm going to get an email with 20 different recommendations <laughs> there are only 52 weeks in a year so we only have to get 104 <laughs> to cross two years we already have almost that. So yeah. we're in August of 2025 right now. So. Right. So we're rapidly. And actually, up. it's later than that because there's stuff in our inbox that I haven't put in yet. I know. I'm guessing we're somewhere <laughs> in the September, October range. Yeah. So we are rapidly approaching two years out, which is hard to imagine that we're going to be doing this for at least two more years. Yeah. <laughs> we're locked in. Thank you for the recommendations, but like, thank you. Uh, chill. Thank you for um, <laughs> assuring that this podcast is somehow going to go well past 300 episodes. Yes. <laughs> so we also need to check the 300th episode and make sure that that's the thing we want to do for the 300th episode. I filled it in already, but okay. I was like, we got to check it because it's highlighted. And I was like, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Anyway. All right. Thank you for listening. We hope you have a safe and healthy week and we'll catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.